Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 4. We will read verses 10 through 15. I would just refresh you a little bit. We're stepping into the middle of a conversation here. Last week we saw Jesus meet with the Samaritan woman at the well. And we noticed how he crossed those cultural barriers, how he crossed those religious barriers to share the gospel with this woman. And the last time we concluded with verse 10 where Jesus told this woman that salvation is a gift and if she only knew it, she would ask him for it. But now he goes on to tell her what it means to have that living water that he is imploring her to drink. And so our reading begins in verse 10 of chapter 4. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Thus ends the reading of God's holy Inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes to your son, Emmanuel, God with us. Would you bless us? Would you help us, carry us, and make us see what we perhaps do not or cannot today? For those believing Would you give us a greater share in your son, using your word to draw us closer to you? For those who do not believe, would you use the scripture to awaken them to new life? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The list of things you physically need and couldn't live for very long without is actually very short. Uh, You can live without food for quite a while. Uh, You can't live without water for very long, though. Uh, Our bodies are mostly made of water, and so if we're missing any water, we start to feel it. Our lips start to get dry. We start to get lightheaded. We start to realize that we're thirsty. Uh, And so we don't do very well without water for a very long period of time. The only thing I can think of that we need more than water is probably oxygen. Uh, We need that just as well. And I think, I think it's very interesting that Jesus uses water as the thing that he tells the Samaritan woman that he gives to those who ask. He uses water to illustrate this thing that she needs. Um, I mean, in his speech to the Samaritan woman, he uses water of all things to represent the meaning, joy, purpose, satisfaction, and forgiveness that he has to offer. Now, what I think is interesting about that is the fact that he uses this thing that's so essential to life itself to talk about himself. 
um, if we, I think instinctively, most of us think of things like meaning, joy, purpose, satisfaction, even forgiveness. I think most of us think about those things as things that are not needs. We think of them as luxuries. We think of them as things that we pursue once we have our needs taken care of. Once the essentials of life are taken care of, then we can talk about satisfaction. Then we can talk about joy. Then we can talk about meaning and so on. But one thing about Jesus's conversation with this woman is that he reminds us that we don't really know what we need most. And Jesus does. And when he talks to this woman, he says, what I give is something that is a need. Whether you realize it's a need or not, even if you think this is a luxury, Jesus says, this is actually not a luxury. This is something that is essential for life as food or air or, to use his illustration, water. Jesus understands this woman. He knows what she needs, absolutely. And she is totally confused by what he's getting at. She keeps reading him literally, which doesn't square with what he's saying. He's using this worldly metaphor. He's using the, the metaphor of water to make her see her spiritual need. And there's an argument buried in what he says to her today, because the argument is, come to me because you're thirsty. I mean, you could boil everything he's saying down to that. Come to me because you're thirsty. Come to me because only I can satisfy. And so I think the best thing to do is just break Jesus's argument in half and look at the two sides of his argument. In part one, I want us to examine the nature of the thirst. Jesus says, you are thirsty. Jesus says, you need something. You're missing something. There is a a lack in your life. That's the first thing. So what is the nature of the thirst? And then in part two, Jesus says, You're thirsty for something that only I can give, so come to me. So part two is the nature of the water. What is it about Jesus that only he can satisfy that thirst and that he shows to us and exposes for us in part one? So part one this morning is the source and nature of the thirst. Um, If we want any help from what Jesus says here, then we need to see that we're in the same boat as the Samaritan woman. It's not as though we're standing on the outside examining scientifically this woman who is in this situation and it has nothing to do with us. Because she is thirsty and needs living water, but only because she has a problem that we can all relate to. Every one of us can relate to the problem that she's dealing with. And to see the problem that Jesus sees in her life, we need to think biblically about the soul of this woman he's talking to. So where does the thirst come from? It comes from within her heart, and it goes all the way back to Genesis. In the garden, we were created. We were created with fellowship with, for fellowship with God. The book of Genesis, of course, shows us that before the fall of mankind, we had real, true fellowship with God. And yet God also recognized in the garden there was a need for us to have a relationship with someone else. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so you see this in the very beginning, even before the fall, man is lacking something until he has fellowship with one another. So we are relational creatures to our very core. We were created for relationship with God and we were created for relationship with one another as well. 
Now, some people might see the situation and they see the, the relationship Adam has with Eve and they see that Adam, when he gets cast out of the garden, what happens? He still has a relationship with his wife. It would be easy to look at that situation and say, well, maybe the lesson here is just like the Beatles said, all you need is love, right? He's, he, he's lost his relationship with God, but look, there's a consolation. He's got this relationship with his wife instead. Um, and some human beings, I think, do believe, hey, look, I, I may not have a relationship with God, but if I pursue relationships with other people, that's going to fill me up. And so what do they do? Well, they pursue more and more relationships, more and more friendships, more and more sexual partners, more and more connections with people in the world around them. They say, I can fill myself up if only I can just reach this threshold where I'll finally find satisfaction in this life. But see, I want, you, I want us to learn from the lesson of what happens with Adam and Eve, because here they are, they've left the garden, they're now alienated from God, and you would think maybe they'll be happy now. But then what happens when they're separated from God? Suddenly they struggle against each other too. They start blaming each other, they start alienating one another from each other, and it turns out when we were separated from God, we lost what mattered most. And we had an emptiness in our lives. And so what did it do? It started to show up in how we treated each other. See, the most fundamental relationship we were created for was really to know God. He made us for himself. He didn't make us for each other. And in our lives, as long as that relationship with God, that vertical relationship between us and the creator is in disarray, we're going to find continually everything else we try turning to ashes in our mouths, including even our earthly relationships. And what that means is we struggle with God, we struggle with others, and we're constantly, unceasingly dissatisfied with ourselves too. We're not just at odds with God, we're not just at odds with our neighbor, we're at odds with our own heart. Blaise Pascal said the problem, the biggest problem with man is he's unable to sit alone in a room by himself. We're stir crazy. We're unhappy even with ourselves. We're empty. We're dissatisfied. We're constantly yearning for something more because we were made for God, but we're alienated from him. So we don't want the very one that's actually meant to satisfy us. So that's the source of the thirst. That's the thirst this woman has. That's where it comes from. It goes back to her alienation from God. But now let's talk about the nature of the thirst. Every single human being feels this thirst. Something in us is wrong. Uh, We were made for something and we've never had enough of it. Albert Camus, the the, uh, famous French atheist writer, talked about this thirst even in his own life. He has this remarkable passage where he says this. He says, I longed for eternal life. I went, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of the mortal state. That's Camus. He sees that he thirsted for eternal life. So what did he do? He pursued all this worldly stuff. Walker Percy, he reminds us, I'm always talking about Walker Percy, he's a Southern writer. Uh, He was from Covington, Louisiana. 
I love, I love Walker Percy so much that a couple of years ago, on the way to General Assembly in Dallas, I swooped through Covington, Louisiana, and went and visited his grave. He's buried at an abbey there outside of Covington. Um, and, and Walker Percy reminds us that some people, everybody is searching, everybody is thirsty, everybody is hungry for the eternal, but they don't all realize that they're on to the search. And so the thing he says is some people aren't aware of the search and some people are. And he says there are a lot of people, they don't think much about it. They don't think much about their purpose. They don't think much about why they're here. And yet you see in their lives the evidence of a constant search, constantly looking for something. And they have no idea that they're searching for anything at all. And he says to become aware of the search is to be on to something. But to, not to be on to something is to be in despair. So he says the world is filled with people who are in despair. And each of us among them who are doing our very best to find the living water that we're in denial about. So we are in denial that we need anything. We're in denial that we need living water. And yet we desperately need it. So what does it look like? We live very self-sufficiently. We do our best to make sure that we don't need anything from anyone else. In fact, I am enough is the slogan of the 21st century. And this woman, unbeknownst to her, is searching for living water. And it turns out she's been searching for it for a very, very, very long time. I want to mention a few things about that thirst. First, this is a thirst for love. Think about this in this woman's life. This woman asks for living water. And we didn't read it this morning, but in verse 15, right after she says, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, the first thing Jesus does is he says, go call your husband and come here. And it forces her in that moment to admit that she's had five husbands and she's living with a man who's not her husband. Now, have you ever found it very odd that Jesus, that she says to Jesus, give me this water, and then his immediate response is to tell her to call her husband? What's going on there? Isn't that, do you find that strange that she asks for living water and Jesus does this? She asks for living water and he starts talking about the men she's been with. When Jesus starts talking about this woman's sex life, let me just say he's not changing the subject. He's not changing the subject. She is saying she doesn't know what this living water is. And so what does Jesus do? He turns her attention to the fact that she is pursuing the living water and has been pursuing the living water in her life. He's, he's looking at her, her life and he's saying, there is evidence here that you are somebody who needs the living water. Let me show you how. He says, look at all these men. She is looking for joy. She is looking for refreshment and power and fulfillment, probably even security, in these men. She knows what it is to thirst. She knows what it is to desire and search and think that maybe this will be the thing that makes the difference. But she's constantly coming up empty and he calls her on it. It just shows the limits of romantic love, right? I mean, you may have the most amazing marriage in human history, right? A story for the ages. Uh, you may have 
the deepest relationship anybody can imagine. Your coming together story may be more dramatic than it is in the notebook, right? You could have the greatest relationship in marriage ever, and it won't fill your soul up. And if you're married, it's really important in your marriage that you remind each other that you have your limits, your love is real, but your love will never completely satisfy each other. One of you will die. One of you will fail. One of you will disappoint. And when that happens, if, if your love for each other is all you have, you will realize that your satisfaction was a house of cards. And if you're single... You might think differently about that. Uh, You might be tempted to see a relationship out there on the horizon someday, and you think to yourself, if I could just have this relationship, if I could just have somebody to love me completely, if you could just reach it, you think then you'd be satisfied. And, And it isn't wrong to want a relationship. We were made for that. But Remember that love and friendship and even romance cannot possibly satisfy our souls. That's what this woman's life has shown us. She is pursuing that. She's following that avenue. She's going that direction and she has found it to still be a dead end. She's still thirsty. Second, it's not just a thirst for love. It's a thirst for a clear conscience. Some of the commentators like Calvin, they they say this woman Jesus is talking to is, is a prostitute. Others Say she's a promiscuous woman, but it just it seems clear that whatever the label we might give her, this is a woman who struggles with guilt. The, the life she leads come with costs of its own, and the cost is wearing on her conscience. And we can relate to this, right? What person in this room doesn't struggle with guilt? Um, maybe you've done something, and it's haunted you, and you're ashamed of it. Or, or maybe you've tried to have a singed or a seared conscience and tried to ignore your sins and ignore your decisions for so long that you start to feel like your life and the whole thing is just soaked in indiscretions. You can't even remember them anymore. Do you ever feel guilty and you don't even know why you feel guilty? Uh, Franz Kafka has this story. This story is called The Trial And in the trial, there's this man who wakes up in this room and he knows he's under sentence and he knows he's under arrest, but no one will tell him what his crime is. Maybe you feel like that. This is a woman who has a guilty conscience. He's telling us and he's telling her that he has the answer to that thirst too, the thirst for a clear conscience. Third, we see this is a thirst for purpose. This is a woman who understands her, her history. She understands her people. She knows about Jacob. She knows about the history of the Samaritans and the Jews. She has a grasp of the past, but she doesn't know the most important thing, why she is here and where she is going. She lacks purpose. This is a, a woman who lacks direction because her life isn't built around the one immovable, unchanging creator God who never changes. Her life isn't built on that. Her life is built on herself and her own feelings, her own urges, her own desires. In her life, there is something missing that can't be filled up by men or knowledge or history or water or any other thing. So what does Jesus say? He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Material things feel good. 
They, they can make us happy even for the moment. They can make our lives comfortable, but they cannot satisfy. Now that doesn't stop us from searching, whether we know it or not. How can you know if you're thirsty for more than what this world offers? Well, think of the indicators. Look at your life. Look at your heart. Look at your lifestyle. Look at the things that you want. The things you are chasing show you what you want. In your own sort of perverse way, all the things you're pursuing in life are things that are in some form or another a chasing after that living water. Just like Camus said, I pursued relationships because I was thirsty for eternal life. You see it here as well with this woman. There is not one person in this room who does not yearn for living water. Even the most hardened skeptic in this room is thirsty for living water. And there is nobody in the world you meet who doesn't need it and doesn't want it. The thing is, they don't like where the answer is. So that's the source. That's the nature of the thirst. We are alienated from God and we keep trying to fill it up with things and people and distractions. And that is certainly this woman and that is certainly us. But Jesus doesn't leave this woman thirsty. He tells her, where to find the things she's yearned for all her life, whether she realizes this or not. And so we see it. Second, this morning, he tells her the source and nature of the water he gives. He's pointed out the need. He's pointed out the lack. And now he's pointing out, I have the answer. The whole conversation is sparked by Jesus' request for water at the beginning. And then he says that if she knew who he was, she'd ask him for living water. And this confuses her. She takes what he says literally. She says, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. And by the way, archaeologists have found Jacob's well. And at the time that it was dug, it is believed to have been the deepest well that existed in Israel. In the 1930s, a measurement was taken that showed that the well, Jacob's well, was 135 feet deep. Now think about that. That's 13 stories. That's a 13-story building, which is an incredible an incredibly deep well. Now, all that is to say, this woman is very right about the, the well. She knows the history. She knows the well. She understands all the ins and outs of this. She reads Jesus, though, all wrong. He's not talking about material things. He's talking about spiritual things. But she's so in the moment that she misses the deeper truth here. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? I mean, on the one hand, you could just say, yes, I'm greater than your father, Jacob, but he doesn't do that. But see, she makes her own argument here. Jesus made the argument for why she needs him. Now she's going to make a counter argument. Uh, And here's what her argument is. She says, first, you have no way to get the water. And then second, she says, the water you give can't be better than this because Jacob gave us this water and he was a great man. So she's, you can see where she's still stuck. She's still stuck in the physical. This is spiritual blindness. Right? The problem isn't a knowledge problem. It is a heart problem. What did Jesus say in the last chapter? He said, light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. So she doesn't believe. She doesn't see. She doesn't even see that she needs, a, needs spiritual help. She is absolutely thirsty, as he saw but she doesn't see Jesus for who he is and doesn't see her own heart for what it is. And so she becomes fixated on the material and Jesus is trying to steer her towards the spiritual to realize that this is a matter of the heart. It's sort of an age-old problem 
that people have had. And Christians have had this problem too, this idea of either being people who are totally focused on spiritual things or people who are totally focused on physical things. Uh, One of the great frustrations is seeing uh, ministries that are all focused on taking care of physical needs, and yet if you ask them, when do you minister the gospel to people, or when do you talk about Jesus with people, they say, well, we just do good works and then hope that they get it. And then on the other hand, you have have people who say, look, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to help you out, I'm just going to pray. And then James takes on this age-old problem. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the thing about being a human being is we are bodies and we have, we have, we are bodies and souls. We have two parts to us. Um, and we're united, of course, as a person. It's very easy to focus on one or the other. And there's this error of thinking the body doesn't matter at all, which James shoots down. But then there's also the error that I think the Samaritan woman makes this morning of thinking the body is the only thing that matters. She doesn't even have eyes to see that there's a spiritual dimension to what Jesus is saying. So Jesus tells her, get that way of thinking out of your head. As long as you focus on stuff and things and physical life, ma'am, you will never be able to make sense out of your thirst for living water or why the things you've been trying have never satisfied you. What does Jesus say? He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This is a different kind of water than is contained in this well. Right? Every other thing she's ever tried has left her empty. There's always something missing. But Jesus says, the water I give him will become in him a spring of life welling up to eternal life. Jesus is emphasizing to her the superiority of what he gives. There is something better than a good cold drink. So let's bring it all together. What is he saying? Physical water can't prevent you from getting thirsty. It's temporary. Jesus Gives something that never goes away. It never diminishes. Once you are in Christ, there is no spiritual back and forth. That doesn't mean life doesn't have struggles in it. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with the balance of loving things in the world that we live in. But the point is, now we have what we need most of all, and we have it forever. Another thing to remember here is physical water only feeds the body, right? It can't fulfill the needs of the soul. Uh, On the one hand... The water Jesus gives goes into the soul and remains within the heart. Each believer, says Jesus, carries within his own soul a source of spiritual refreshment and satisfaction. And that's not because it comes from us or because we're great, but because we have the spirit who lives in us forever and is the source of the satisfaction that we need. And then Jesus' final point is physical water is limited. It runs out, right? It lessens and disappears when we drink from it. Why is Jacob's well 135 feet deep in the 1930s? Isn't it because as you drink the water, it goes down? And isn't it because the ground underneath containing the water eventually dries up? And if we keep drinking from these things and keep drawing from these sources, eventually those sources dry up and go away too. But the living water of Jesus is different. It's self 
filling. It's a self-filling spring that never runs out. It sustains our souls. It keeps us satisfied. And even more than that, the spiritual water Jesus gives carries us all the way to the last day. Because what does the text say? It says, this is water welling up to eternal life. Spiritual things are very hard to appreciate. Uh, They're hard for us to understand. You know, we live so much in this world. We just instinctively gravitate toward what we can see around us. And so we mistakenly think that what we can see is what we really need. Even if we, in our heads, say, I know that what's spiritual matters. At the end of the day, it is so much easier for us to focus on our bodies than it is on our souls. You know, my first instinct when I get up is to make that cup of coffee. (laughs) My first instinct when I get up is not to cry out to the Lord to help me. Not usually. Um, Maybe you can relate. I appreciate the fact that Jesus used this thing that we all know, which is water, to illustrate what he gives. Water is a necessity. There is no life without it. And so as we close this morning, think about water. You might be able to live an hour without water. Try living a week without water. You might be able to live a day without water. Try living your life without water. The life that Jesus gives, the living water Jesus gives, is not optional. It's not an add-on to our lives. Because if you go without the living water of Jesus, you are playing the short game. Maybe you say to yourself, well, I'm fine. I'm breathing. I'm, I'm alive. I keep chasing this stuff. Yes, that's true for the moment. You're playing the short game. If you're an unbeliever this morning, maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you, maybe you say, well, I'm fine. I feel good. I don't feel any of these problems. Uh, I'm great. I'll grant you that maybe you don't feel miserable. I think there's a mistake that some preachers make, and I think I've even made it from the pulpit before, this assumption that, well, all unbelievers are miserable. I think that's simply not the case. Unbelievers don't often know that they're miserable. But let me suggest this to you. If you're not a Christian, but let's say you're also, you also think you're not looking for living water. Well, let's test that. Let's see if that's true. Take a look at how you live. Does your life reflect the lifestyle of somebody who is not thirsty for everlasting life? Are you willing to be honest with yourself the way that Albert Camus was? He says, I pursued all of those things because I was thirsty for everlasting life. If you you looked at your life, what areas would we be able to point to and say, yes, you can see the search. You can see that this person needs the living water and they're settling for substitutes. What areas of your life expose the search that you're on? What's on the horizon that keeps you going? What's out there that you put your hope in that you think, once I reach that, everything's going to be great? Is it a relationship that you hope for? Is it an adventurous lifestyle? Is it a vacation you're planning? Is it a movie that you're looking forward to? What is it that gets you excited? Or maybe we could diagnose it another way. Instead of looking at what you're pursuing, let's look at it another way. What is it that you're afraid of losing? What is it that you dread the absence of in your life? What would you despair if it was taken away? 
Is it something you can lose? Is it something you will lose someday? If so, you are drinking from a well and the water level is dropping and it will run dry. I can give you an example of this. I was watching a documentary about Bill Gates uh, and the director asked Bill Gates this question. He says, what is your greatest fear? And Bill paused for a very long time, almost an uncomfortable length of time. And then finally, he said, what do I fear most? He said, I really don't want my brain to stop working. And as I reflected on that, I thought, here is the richest man in the world. And the thing he fears most is guaranteed to happen to him. It's just a matter of time. See, Bill is looking for living water too. Don't you see that? Malcolm Muggeridge was a famous journalist, a very well-respected man in his own day. I want you to hear what he says about success. He says, I may pass for a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, I may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote represented a serious impact on the time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you, beg you to believe me, multiply those tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. I would suspect most of you don't know who Malcolm Muggeridge is anymore, right? He had fame in his own day, but he knew that his hope wasn't in, being, in remaining famous and being remembered. His hope had to be in Christ. And he was right. Nothing matches what Jesus gives, not fame, not money, not short-lived pleasures. If you come to Jesus, you'll still need physical drink, you'll still need... Physical food and shelter, your life in this world will still matter, of course. But, but Christ points us to the reality that your deepest need, your soul need, is met by Jesus. Not a, not a matter of luxury. This is a matter of need. You need this. Jesus is not saying that pursuing fulfilling things in this world is wrong. What he tells us is they won't ultimately deliver only the life that Jesus gives can answer your deepest needs for purpose, for love, for forgiveness. And so my prayer for us this morning is two things. That we would know the gift of God that Jesus talks about. That we would know the living water. My other prayer is this. That others would drink from the same living water because of our life and witness to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, would you pinpoint in our own hearts the ways that we might love things and even mask the truth that we are each, that we each need to acknowledge that we were made for you and without you we have no hope. Would you draw people to you? Would you show us our own emptiness without the living water that comes from your son? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.